Welcome to the Reorg Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage, finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. Today's primary review offering is an interview with Rima Agarwal, Senior Vice President and Director of Floating Rate Debt at Franklin Templeton. Rima joins Reorg's Jeff Burroughs to discuss the recent pickup in issuances in the primary market, what's drawing market borrowers and investors to the market right now, and what's on tap for next year. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, August 14th. Welcome to the Reorg Primary View. My name is Jeff Burrows, a reporter on Reorg's core credit team. And today I'm joined by Rima Agarwal, the Senior Vice President and Director of Floating Rate Debt for Franklin Templeton Fixed Income. We're gonna talk about primary, primary market, primary issuance, uh, the door slightly opening for volumes and what lies ahead. Rima, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned, it's been a good few weeks for the primary market. We're seeing a lot of new deals. This is despite it happening in the dog days of August. Um, we want to talk about you know, what might be bringing mark borrowers and investors to the market right now. And given that the pickup's happening now, how what might the rest of the year look like for the primary market? Sure. So yes, you are right. We have seen a pickup in new issuance over the last few weeks. Um, on the demand side, retail outflows have subsided a bit as investors have generally become uh, more constructive on the probability and severity of any economic slowdown that we might see in the coming quarters. Uh, in addition to that, active managers do, I think, uh, still carry healthy cash balances. So both of these are creating a demand pull for issuance that's causing levels in the secondary market to go up, which in turn is then helping bring primary issuance to market because relative value then starts becoming more palatable for all participants. Um, I will say that a lot of the new issue that we have seen in the past several weeks has been in the form of repricings or refinancings. Year to date, if you look at the numbers, according to some estimates, almost 80% of issuance in our market has been in the form of repricings or refinancings. This past week, that was closer to 90%. So when you look at the market, uh, it peaked at about 30% plus last month, but the percentage of loans that's trading above par where they start becoming repricing candidates, that's currently sitting at about 22%. So we continue to expect that repricings and refinancings will be a key driver of new issue in the market after this second half of August seasonal lull. I think at this point, we continue to expect that repricings and refinancings will be a key driver of new issue into the market. Uh, second half of August should see a seasonal lull, but after that, I think that's gonna be the primary driver to the extent some of these recent repricings take some of the wind out of the market, we might see that taper off, but that should be the theme in the near term. I appreciate that. And, you know, despite there being an uptick a little bit, even if it's just in refis, taken broadly, mm -hmm. 2023 was a little tepid when it comes to the primary market. Now, if this is a reopening of somewhat, uh, what, what do you expect to happen in 2024 and next year? Do you expect um, this momentum to continue? And if so, what might be those chief drivers of supply that bring a new issuance back? Yeah, so I think it's going to be more of the same. We are going to see more refi as more issuers look to take care of near-term maturities. 
There's not a whole lot left uh, until the end of 2024. I think about 3% of the index matures before then. But 25 and 26, we'll see more than a quarter of the loans in our market coming due. Um, I don't see a whole lot of new money issuance trend in the loan market. In fact, we might see loans get refinanced into the high yield or the private credit market. Um, if indeed this supply gets pulled into the other markets, that will help technicals in our market, which may actually cause some dividends or add-ons um, from the more generally loved issuers in our market. So that could be the flavor. But overall volumes, I would still expect to remain subdued. I will say that we are still in an asset class that's completely floating rate in a high interest rate environment. Issuers are going to try not to come to our market unless they don't have a choice or they see rate cuts on the horizon. And so they can benefit from the constant callability of loans. Yeah, and that, and that comment on rate cuts segues great into my next question, so I appreciate it. Um, obviously, the biggest player in, in the past two years with regards to issuance has been the Fed. Um, and obviously in July, as everyone expected, they raised rates again. But now they're in a different macro environment Inflation numbers are trending lower, but employment's still very strong. Um, as you're looking at macro numbers, have, has your expectation for Fed policy changed? Um, and if it, ha if it has, how might a change in Fed policy uh, affect primary volumes, volumes going forward? Sure. So we've consistently believed and we continue to believe that the Fed is going to keep rates higher for longer than a lot of market participants have expected over the last several months, even now, um, especially in a soft landing or no landing, as some people are expecting, we think those rates stay high. Uh, we think employment numbers do need to come down for there to be a definitive drop in inflation closer to the Fed target. Uh, we think employment numbers do need to come down for there to be a sustainable definitive drop in inflation closer to the Fed target. And given the resilience of the economy so far, it is unclear to me when and at what pace that happens. We think that there are two opposing factors at play here. Higher rates combined with a falling expected default rate scenario in a soft landing will bring yield-driven investors to loans. Yields and loans are currently really healthy. That can pull primary issuance. However, it, are, it, are, it is these very rates that may keep a lid on a whole lot of new loan issuance. So only issuers that cannot finance in the fixed rate markets will come to loans for incremental dollars. So on balance, it may happen that new issuance picks up somewhat, but based on that demand pool. But overall, I think uh, refi or opportunistic activity will dominate. Great. And I want to touch on one thing that you mentioned earlier, um, which was, you know, we're dealing with floating rate debt in a time when rates have only been going up. Um, my first part of the question is, how companies are dealing with those higher interest rate burdens. But the second part, which I think is something we've been tracking recently is the pull and pull of the tug and pull, sorry, of the syndicated market and private credit markets. Are higher interest rates driving some borrowers away from uh, the traditional syndicated market into that private credit market from your view? Sure. Um, so just talking about what companies are doing in this higher interest rate environment, well, hedging is always the first line of defense. So a lot of issuers have hedged their interest rate uh, exposures. A lot of that happened last year. So some of these hedging hedges are beginning to roll off or they will roll off early next year. Uh, what happens on that front 
after that is TBD. Uh, companies have been cutting costs to preserve their cash flow because it is just as much about cash flow as it is about the actual interest coverage rate that you're seeing. Um, companies that can still access capital markets are, as you said, they're refinancing into high yield, so moving away from floating rate, or they're getting liquidity lines from their sponsors or some lenders are getting together and giving them a bridge. Uh, there have also been some cases where investors will get together and say, let's do some self-help here. The business model is fine, but if we can um, turn off the cash pay on these loans for a while, let's do that. So, so there is some of that happening. Um, you talked about the private market, the private credit market. So there are, we've seen instances where riskier borrowers who need to address near-term debt maturities, they've been running parallel processes in the in our market and in the private credit market. If they don't get enough support in our market, they look to get a deal done in the private market, right? But keep in mind that the private credit market is also primarily floating rate. So it depends on what terms they get. I think that the desire of an issuer to go to the private credit market will be um, if they can get a lower coupon, but they are willing to live with the tightness and the documents that hopefully some of these private credit lenders will be able to build in. Certainly a, a lot of options um, for these companies, but uh, still a tricky, a tricky situation for many. Right. Um, right. As we're wrapping up this podcast here, I want to talk a bit more about the types of these, uh, these new deals, these new issuances. Have we seen an evolving, uh, evolving terms when it comes to covenants, investor protections? Um, how are you seeing those things change, if at all? Um, and what has a has there been a consensus that's come across? Sure. So um, on new issue, on pure new issue, typically we are seeing companies that can access the capital markets very well. They are the ones that are coming with new issue. Uh, not a whole lot of change there. Uh, it's on the margin. Where we are seeing changes is where companies are looking to extend maturities or do something else with their credit agreement, where we are seeing addition of protections to guard against asset stripping. We've said for a long time now that one of the biggest uh, holes that were drilled into loan documentation was this potential of asset stripping, where borrowers can basically take away the assets for us who are supposed to be senior secured lenders. Um, so I think that that hole is, uh, is being plugged in select situations. But I don't see a wholesale change in improvement in investor protections um, ongoing at this time. Great. And for my last question, it's been a pretty rosy talk so far. I mean, given where the primary market was at, even this uh, new new issuance is a positive sign. And going forward, it looks like we'll keep having positive signs. Um, I wanted to paradox or I wanted to end on a bad note for once. Is there, are there things that you're still worried about in the market or things that are still keeping you up at night when it comes to primary issuance, despite a resurgence that we've seen? Sure. Uh, not a bad note, a cautionary note, I would say, um, which is, uh, it's related to what I was just talking about. It's lender protections. Uh, I worry about documentation and the changes that have occurred in the loan market over the last six, seven, eight years, uh, maybe more. Uh, what that's going to cause is when companies go into stress, uh, if you don't have a seat at the table, 
then you may not have a recovery that is similar to the lenders that are, have a seat at the table. So the potential of, of having differing recoveries is something that we worry about. We are very razor focused on uh, our position sizes and names and uh, where to stay nimble and where to be more active. But I think that is that is something that is going to be um, a different dynamic this time around than it has been. The other thing I would say is uh, we are, it feels like we are towards the end of the Fed rate hike cycle. But if the Fed has to hike rates more, that could cause a higher than expected uptick in defaults. So this is, I think, the time to be really clear that security selection is critical. And so that's what we spend the most time on. That's what uh, occupies our time these days. Yeah, we. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Not a not a bad note. Never want to end on a bad note, but a cautionary note. Uh, well, again, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you all for listening to the primary view. Uh, we'll have a next next episode uh, next week. And thanks again. Late Sunday, August 6th, freight logistics company Yellow Corp filed Chapter 11 in Delaware seeking to liquidate its assets and wind down operations. The company said it was forced to cease operations in late July after the Teamsters Union threatened to strike and refused to cooperate with operational restructuring efforts. Yellow initially sought approval of a dip facility from pre-petitioned B2 term lenders associated with Apollo, but at a status conference on Monday, the debtor said they are still assessing alternative dip financing proposals from top shareholder MFN Capital, ST Strategic Lines, and other parties. MFN is now willing to fund a new money dip facility on a junior basis, said Yellow's counsel. Western Global, an independent provider of worldwide commercial air cargo transportation, sought Chapter 11 protection in Delaware this week. The debtor signed an RSA with an ad hoc group of bondholders holding more than 85% of senior unsecured notes due 2025 that would reduce Western's debt load by $450 million. At an uncontested first-day hearing, the court granted interim dip approval, giving the debtors access to $60.7 million of a $75 million senior secured superpriority priming term dip facility, comprising $35 million in new money loans and a $25.7 million roll-up of senior secured bridge loans. Amiris, the world's leading manufacturer of ingredients made with synthetic biology, also filed in Delaware this week. The debtors seek to sell their consumer brands. Whether they restructure the remaining lab-to-market business will depend on whether they meet a September 13th plan support deadline to develop a consensual plan of reorganization with key parties. If the debtors do not meet this deadline, they will pursue an all-asset sale instead. The court approved the debtors' dip financing on an interim basis at the first day hearing, unlocking $70 million of a $190 million new money senior secure dip term facility with UAGORE LLC, an affiliate of prepetition secured lender Fortis Ventures. For in-court coverage, we take a look at AMC Entertainment, Purdue, and Core Scientific. Vice Chancellor Morgan Zern of the Delaware Court of Chancery issued an opinion approving the revised settlement in the AMC Entertainment Holdings stockholder litigation related to the conversion of AMC Preferred Equity Units, or APEs, into common stock. Under the terms of the settlement, after giving effect to a 1 for 10 reverse stock split and conversion of APEs into common stock, AMC will issue one share of new common stock for every 7.5 shares of common stock held on the day prior to the conversion taking effect. The U.S. Supreme Court will review the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit's May 30th Purdue decision upholding the Purdue plan's non-consensual non-debtor releases, including releases of the Stackler family. The court indicated it will hear the case at the December argument session and directed the parties to brief the following questions. Whether the Bankruptcy Code authorizes a court to approve as part of a plan of reorganization under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code a release of the, that extinguishes claims held by non-debtors against non-debtor third parties without the claimant's consent. 
The core scientific debtors amended their plan documents to reflect new terms negotiated with three of their five key stakeholder groups. B. Riley, the debtor's replacement dip lender and largest unsecured creditor, a substantial majority of minor equipment lenders, and the official equity committee. Debtors also announced a settlement in principle with the Celsius Network debtors, their largest litigation claimant, which would acquire Core Scientific's Cedarville facility in Barstow, Texas. However, the, un- the official unsecured creditors committee and the ad hoc convertible no-holder c- group do not support the latest plan. Team Health, Trinseo, Malincrout, WeWork, Utigel, and Kino Health round out this week's crop of potential restructurings. Team Health secured a financing commitment in late July for $750 million of new first lien notes due 2028 and is finalizing documentation for a new account receivable facility by a group of banks to address its debt maturities in 2023 and 2024. Team Health designated it as unrestricted certain subsidiaries related to its healthcare financial services segment and contributed substantially all receivables to newly formed unrestricted securitization subsidiaries. The physician group is also in discussions with lenders regarding a new senior secured revolver with a maturity date no earlier than six months before the maturity of the new notes. Trinseo issued a notice of partial redemption of $385 million at par for the company's 2025 notes conditioned on being able to consummate a financing transaction with sufficient proceeds by September 7th. On the company's earnings call, management said they were very confident in being able to refinance both the 2024 and 2025 maturities in the third quarter, and the company has been in deep discussions with a variety of lender groups, both public and private. In Mallinckrodt's second quarter 2023 earnings release, the company said it continues to actively engage in advanced discussions with various stakeholders toward a restructuring support agreement for a second Chapter 11 filing in three years. The contemplated Chapter 11 proceedings would cause the company's ordinary shares to be canceled, which would result in no recovery for holders of ordinary shares, the company said. As of June 30th, Mallinckrodt had $480.6 million of cash on hand and cash equivalents. To aid in negotiations with stakeholders, on July 13th, the company borrowed $100 million on its newly fully drawn receivables financing facility. As of Wednesday, August 9th, cash totaled approximately $550 million. WeWork admitted substantial doubt about the company's ability to continue as a going concern in a second quarter 2023 report disclosing negative $303 million of cash flow for the quarter. As of June 30th, the company had $205 million in cash and cash equivalents and $475 million in delayed draw note commitments, resulting in total liquidity of $680 million. The company also appointed four new board members, each having a considerable amount of restructuring experience. Negotiations between Unigel and creditor groups continue ahead of a Monday, August 14th deadline for the company to report second quarter earnings. The company is expected to report that it violated a leverage covenant on its debentures. Some negotiations have focused on granting collateral to unsecured creditors, according to sources. The company sent a proposal to creditors' advisors after they signed non-disclosure agreements, but creditors have not seen the proposal. Cato Health issued a going concern warning on its second quarter financial report, which also disclosed liquidity of $101.5 million as of Wednesday, August 9th. The company entered into an amendment to its sidecar credit agreement that increased its interest rate to 16% through February 24, 2025, and added a make-hold premium in the event of a voluntary or mandatory prepayment of the loan within the next 18 months. As part of the amendment, the company will pursue a comprehensive process to identify and evaluate interest in a sale of the company or all or substantially all of its assets. The company has not set a timetable for the conclusion of this process. Top Red Stories this week included... Washington Prime post-bankruptcy squeeze-out breach of contract claims survive dismissal. Court throws out fiduciary duty claims against directors, SVP. LTL-TCC seeks order barring third bankruptcy filing for 180 days. Debtors urge court not to prejudge another Texas two-step Chapter 11 case. Mitel up to exchange challenge sent back to New York State Court. 
Fourth Circuit denies petitions for rehearing on Bonk, affirming best wall injunction barring litigation against non-debtor affiliates. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with The Week Ahead. Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. Here are a few highlights of a light week. The Celsius Network Debtors Disclosure Statement hearing was adjourned last week and is now scheduled to go forward on Monday. The debtors filed an amended plan and disclosure statement last week that do not substantively alter the new co or orderly wind-down transactions, but do reduce the new co capitalization by $50 million to $450 million. Also on the agenda is approval of the recent settlement with the Official Unsecured Creditors Committee, the Earn Ad Hoc Group, the Borrower Ad Hoc Group, and certain pro se creditors. The settlement resolves the party's plan disputes as well as the Unsecured Creditor Committee's $5.2 billion class proof of claim on behalf of account holders. According to the amended disclosure statement, the debtors are now seeking an October 2nd confirmation hearing. On Tuesday, the Benefit Technologies debtors face a motion to postpone plan confirmation. The Official Unsecured Creditors Committee is seeking to push the August 30th confirmation hearing to September 14th because the committee needs more time to investigate potential claims that would be released under the proposed plan. The committee claims that dip lender and equity sponsor Madison Dearborn Partners and the term lenders did not begin responding to discovery requests until the end of July, which has hampered the investigation. The committee argues that its investigation is critical because the debtors have not investigated potential claims and have not provided enough information regarding the terms of the releases or released parties. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, including a packed schedule of earnings releases, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website. Have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.